Don't you love worshiping the Lord? And I'm glad to worship the Lord with you. And isn't it a great way to start this new year? Praising the one that we get to see today at the end here of Matthew chapter 14. It has been a long day for Jesus. Remember, he, he heard in the morning that his cousin, John the Baptist, had just been beheaded. He goes off to mourn to a private place, a solitary place, and then all these crowds of people come, and he has to minister to them. His heart has compassion toward them. And then, after the end of this long day of teaching the people and doing these miracles, the disciples come and, and present this problem. Of course, there's always problems that happen in ministry. There's no food. What does Jesus do? He takes this little boy's lunch, he produces it out and does this miraculous feeding of 5,000. And now at the end of this long day, he has had a chance to get away by himself. His disciples are now in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Look at what the Bible says there in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. They sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea tossed by the waves. For the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus sent, went to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this amazing section in the scriptures and also that every single part of this section, just how it, it, it not only builds upon itself, but, but also shows us miraculously through your prophetic power, through your prophetic wisdom, uh, who you are, not as just a rabbi or a teacher or a person who just did miracles, but the Lord of all creation, the one who created the very waves that he is now walking upon. Lord, tonight we may be in the same situation as the disciples. Our year didn't start out the way that we wanted it to. We may be going through problems ourselves. We may be fearful. We may be in those hardships of life that come. And we feel just like the disciples that no good thing goes unpunished. And after serving all these people, and now there's this storm, and what do we do? And just that reliance upon the Lord that we're going to see, and also in our own lives, Father. Lord, help us as we, we see what Peter and the disciples do to look upon you. Not upon the problems, not upon the waves, not upon the, the, the things that may be bringing us down, but upon you. Knowing that you're there to lift us up every single time. So, Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I love this section, especially in, now that we're in the middle of the book of, of Matthew, just how poignant it is. A after describing all these uh, parables, as we saw in chapter 13, again, uh, very unique parables, especially to the book of Matthew. 
And, and now this long day that Jesus is finishing up here as he's uh, again walking on the water, he hasn't had a chance to sleep. In, in fact, what has he been doing all a day long? He's been ministering. In fact, right at the beginning of chapter 14, he's been chased out of his own hometown of Nazareth, the people in it that he grew up with hate him. They're chasing him away, and now he learns about his cousin being beheaded. He goes off to this wilderness area to be alone. The people come. They need to be ministered to. And then now at the end of this long day, what is he doing? Praying to God, having communion with the one that he had always had communion with, since the beginning of everything. In fact, even before time began, that fellowship that he needed. Look at what it says there in verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. How did Jesus get replenished? And this is the Son of God. This is the deity incarnate. This is Emmanuel, a God amongst us. Did Jesus need to be refilled himself? Yes. And so as he's up here on the mountain, as he's praying alone with the Lord, after all day long having to deal with their problems, with the people's problems, with their you know sicknesses, infirmities, and all the things that they need, the very food that sustained them during the day, what does Jesus do? He goes up to that mountaintop to pray. One of, one of my favorite things to do is to have devotions on a rock. I love to find a big rock and have devotions. My, my dad, when we were overseas, my wife and I, and right before we were coming back, to live in Tehachapi, there, there was this big rock. And my dad said, I'm going to push this rock over into this ravine. I told him, leave it there. I want that rock. Yes, it's the perfect place to have quiet time with the Lord. What, what is Jesus doing? He's finding a place where there's no one to have communion with God, to have fellowship with God. Oh, and all of us need that, whether it's a, a prayer closet, whether it's a place in your house or maybe outside your house or just walking or sometimes even your car, right? Just traveling, just to have that time with the Lord that every single one of us, even Jesus Christ, needed that alone time with the Lord. But, but even Jesus, could Jesus escape the problems that were going on around him? In fact, what was happening while he was praying in that very instance? The disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee getting tossed about on a storm. This seemed to be one of the things that always happened. The disciples, even though they were experienced fishermen, are now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, the Bible says, for the wind was uh, contrary. Now, this is one of those words that we may not really uh, fully grasp as non-boating people or non-fishing people. But if you've ever been on a, an ocean where the winds were going in the wrong direction, okay? What happens to a boat that is trying to go against the wind? Does it get very far? No, and this is exactly what's happening 
uh, with the disciples. They want to go one direction, and which way is the wind blowing? The wrong direction, right? The opposite direction to them. It says there in verse 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And by the way, these are experienced fishermen, okay? They've lived on the Sea of Galilee their entire lives. They've lived in this region. They've made their living, working in this area. And what do they see now walking in the Sea of Galilee? This goes against every single person that tries to knock uh, the word of God. He is not walking on some rocks or in a shallow shoal, okay? The disciples know this area. What is happening? Who is walking toward them? You know the answer, but the disciples didn't. In fact, they're so scared. Again, these are seasoned fishermen hardened men that have lived in this area. And what do they describe the person that is coming toward them? A ghost. They're scared. They've never seen this happen ever. And they're fearful of what is happening. Not only is there wind, not only is there waves, but now there's this person walking on the water toward them. I love this part. Verse 27, this is the second time we see the word immediately in the same exact section. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. What does it mean when God himself, the one who created those winds, created those waves, created the very water that he is walking on, defying nature itself is now telling them to be of good cheer. Who is in charge? Who's in control? Jesus, right? I, I don't know how your year started. But can you rely upon Jesus to tell you the same exact three words? Be of, or four words, excuse me, be of good cheer, right? Be of good cheer, because does God want you to trust in him? Does Jesus want you to trust in him? And who immediately, the one that always wanted to be first, the one that always had the answers, the one that always stuck his foot in his mouth, the one that was always ready to jump out of the boat, the one that we're really quick to criticize. What does he do immediately? What does Peter do? What does he want? Yeah, he wants to get out of the boat. He wants to go and touch Jesus. He wants to walk to Jesus. He wants to walk on water, and he does. I love this. But And G, or Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter is doing something very important here. What is he asking from Jesus? What is he asking from Jesus? Command me. Who is the one that is issuing the command and who is the one that's obeying the command? What is G Peter doing? He's showing his submission to the one who is walking on the water. He he's showing his submission to the one that he sees that no other thing ever that he's ever experienced in his entire life, the one who is the Lord of creation, 
knowing that he himself has also been created, needs to be commanded by that Savior, needs to be commanded by the one who created those very uh, ways. And then the next thing he asks for, and this is just as important, come to you on the water. Because what does every experienced fisherman know? What does every experienced fisherman know? What happens if you get out of the boat? Yeah. And by the way, they didn't have life vests back then. They didn't have the rings that say lifesaver on them. They, they didn't have any flotation devices. And this uh, above and beyond, and again, we're, we're very critical of Peter, yeah, but there was a lot of other people that stayed in the boat. And we're very seldom critical of them. But at least Peter was willing to get out of the boat. At least Peter actually walked on water for a short. Uh, so he said, come, one word, the Savior says, the Creator says. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, you've probably heard many sermons on this, and thank God for that. Uh, th this is amazing what happens when you take your eyes off of the Creator. You sink every single time. Peter had it right at the beginning. Who is he looking at? He's looking at a Jesus. As long as he's looking at Jesus, he is walking on water. Unfortunately, when we take our eyes off of Jesus and look at our problems or look at our circumstances, uh, what happens to our perspective? We now get worried. We now focus on the things that we shouldn't focus on. We focus on the waves. We focus on the wind. We focus on the problems and what happens to our lives. Just like Peter, exactly what happens here. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now, again, we're very critical. He, he took his eyes off of Jesus, but he does get something right. Who does he cry out to? Thank God. Even if we're thinking, even if we're taking our eyes off of Jesus, can we still cry out to him at any time? Even in the most dire of circumstances. And by the way, this isn't a some sort of memorized prayer. This is desperation from Peter himself. Lord, save me. And by the way, he uses the capital L-O-R-D. Because who is he recognizing as the one that is the creator of the very waves that he is walking? Doesn't call him rabbi. Doesn't call him good teacher. Doesn't call him a, a, a person. What does he cry out with the honorific Lord save me? Does he recognize the authority of the one who is walking on the waves? Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said to him. And again, that's the third time you see that word. Immediately. Who's immediately there with that strong arm to pull you up out of the way? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when you got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is prophetic, by the way. Because 
the babe that was born in the stable, the one that the, the shepherds beheld, the one that, that at the, the, those people that came and saw the manger beheld, the very people in the temple that beheld Jesus Christ, Mary and Joseph that, that beheld Jesus as a baby. He is now showing his deity over all of creation by walking on the way. But by walking on the very creation that he himself created. Can, can you imagine God at the beginning uh, uh, of the creation of the world designing the Sea of Galilee that he knew he himself would one day be walking on? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that absolutely amazing? God, God in his infinite wisdom prophetically planning, uh, this is one of the spots where I'm going to walk on water. And designed it specifically for that. Des designed the hills or the mountains around the Sea of Galilee so it itself has its own weather patterns that were unpredictable so that any time the, these winds and these waves could whip up and, and you wouldn't see them coming and all of a sudden you're stuck out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee as the winds are blowing against you and who is now walking on that water? the one who created the very Sea of Galilee itself, Jesus Christ, for this very event to prove who he is to the very disciples. In fact, the proof that Jesus is God, the one who created the wind and the waves, was standing there on the water controlling his creation, the very creation that he himself created. But Jesus is never left alone. It continues on there in verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret. And again, he hasn't had time to sleep, okay? He's been up since the beginning of chapter 18 there. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. Remember, there was an, uh, a lady who had been bleeding for a, a, a very long time, and what did she do? Touch the hem of his robe. Just touch the hem of his garment. You guys know what a hem is, right? It's the, the, the edge that is sewn back on the bottom of garment or, or on your sleeves or on the, the collar area. It's meant to prevent fraying, right? But for a rabbi or a Jewish man, there were these tassels on the corners of the robe or on the four places of the robe. And, and so you had these tassels that were hanging off uh, uh, the robe from the hem. They represented not only what the Old Testament says was supposed to be a part of a garment of a priest or a teacher of the law, but also as the people are trying to grab the hem or just touch the very edge as Jesus is walking through the crowd, they're, they're touching these prophetic tassels that were designed by God, even described in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, and also in the book of Numbers, these tassels that were used to represent uh, the position of the person. And what are they doing? They're touching the hem of his robe. This is so powerful. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the very fact of what Jesus is doing 
as he's walking through the crowd of Genesaret. And, and by the way, I have a, a, a picture here. This is a, a map, and you've probably seen this uh, before. This is the northern uh, region of Israel itself. This is the Sea of Galilee region. Remember, in chapter 13, we ended with Jesus being kicked out of the city of Nazareth. You can see it there on the, the bottom uh, left-hand side. And now he's in Genesaret, which is in the northern region of the Sea of Galilee, okay? Not a long distance, but an area where he himself is not only performing miracle after miracle, but what does the Bible say? How many people are actually coming to see him? All. It says all, multiple times in that one section. Two times, it says all the people are coming. They're all coming out. And remember, he had just been rejected in Nazareth. And last week I told you, look at the end of chapter 13, look at the end of 14, and you're going to see contrasting views of the very same situation. When Jesus comes into the town, when miracles are being performed to the people at the end of chapter 14, and there's no miracles at the end of chapter 13. Why? Because they rejected uh, Jesus. And now here in Genesaret, in this uh, northern region of the Sea of Galilee here, uh, we see the people actually believing in Jesus, so much so that they just want to touch the hem of his robe. Just to touch the hem of his robe. Look at what it says. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now it's, inter now it's interesting because... What had Jesus just come from doing? Walking on water. Now what happens, remember, there's this robe, okay? And whether the robe came down to his ankles or so, we don't really know exactly the, the full length, but there was these tassels that had come off the robe. Remember, there's tassels that are hanging off the four corners of this robe. Do you think they had touched the water? Isn't that amazing? To, to see the Lord of creation, the one who is walking on the water that he had just come off of the Sea of Galilee, now in the Genesaret region, and the people want to touch the very hem of his robe. The symbolism is absolutely amazing. Just the power of who Jesus is and, and the difference between these people here as they're desiring to touch uh, the hem of his robe, what is happening to them? Miracles are taking place and everyone is perfectly well. Now remember, look at the end of chapter 13. And if you were here last week, it's absolutely amazing just the contrast between what is happening here in Genesaret and in his own hometown. At the end of chapter 13 of the book of Matthew, the last two verses there, it says, so they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There's, there's a, just this massive contrast between just one chapter and another, one region and another, one area and another because of their what? Unbelief. Then we start chapter 15. This is one of my favorite sections in all of Matthew. This, this is the, one of the most amazing stories that you can ever read in the book of Matthew. 
And so many times we miss it because we're Gentiles. We're, we're non-Jewish. Um, those of us that have not a single drop of Jewish blood, we read this section and it totally goes over our head. And, and, and it's a, there's a reason why, because Matthew, of course, is writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to the Jews in this case. It's the purpose of the book. Where if you go to the book of Mark, the very next book, in fact, this story is only found in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, okay? Matthew uses one line, one sentence to describe this event. Mark uses five sentences. He, he fleshes it out. He brings it out. And the reason why is because the audience that Matthew is writing to, they understand what this means. Where Mark is writing to Gentiles, people have no idea what is going on in this section. And, and so hopefully later on this week or, or even tonight, you'll go and you'll read Mark chapter 7, which tells the exact same thing that is happening only to us dunce heads like Gentiles that have no clue uh, what the Jewish tradition of the washing of hands actually means. Now, or you can just wait for about six months until the we get to Mark and then we'll go through it. But th there's an interesting thing that is taking place here because to the Jewish mind, this is what they would do every single time they ate bread, if you're a good Jew. Now, if you weren't a good Jew, you wouldn't do this, okay? But every single time you eat bread, you were supposed to ceremonially wash your hands. Now, your grandma and your mom were absolutely correct. What did they tell you to do before dinner or before lunch or when you came into the house? What did they always tell you to do? Why? Because they were good Jews, right? They understood this, right? Go and wash your hands, right? Now, this is exactly what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of. And if you're a kid here, you can tell your parents this. Jesus didn't wash his hands. Isn't that a great thing to say? Jesus didn't wash his hands, right? In fact, that's exactly what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of not doing. He didn't ceremonially wash his hands. Look at what it says there. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who are from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, oh, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The last two words are very important. Because this only pertained when you were eating bread. This only, and, and by the way, just like in, I, I had the privilege of living in, in the Philippines with my wife for about two and a half years, and every single meal you eat rice, okay? Every breakfast, lunch, dinner, it was not considered a meal unless you had rice, okay? It's the same thing in the Middle East. It's not considered a meal unless you eat bread. It had to have bread. There had to be bread to sop up that delicious sauce, right? To, to, to take that sauce with that last piece of bread as you clean your plate and you put it into your mouth, right? The utensil, it, it was the utensil that was used in order to eat uh, the meal. It, it was part of the culture. It, it is part of the culture. It, it's who the Jews were. And so whenever they would have a meal with bread, they would ceremonially wash 
their hands. Now, the book of Mark brings it out in a lot greater detail again because Mark is writing to Gentiles that have no clue why they would wash their hands. And the book of Mark brings it out in a very important way because what the book of Mark, especially in the New King James Version, brings it out as they would use this cup that had two handles. Okay, I, I, when we get to the book of Mark, I'll, I'll show you. It's absolutely amazing. But they would literally put a fist and pour as they're reciting the Barak Atta Adonai, which is this beautiful prayer as they're pouring this water three times over the, each of their fists. They would say this prayer, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of the hands. What did they do every single time they would eat bread? They would wash their hands, again, remembering who is the one that gave them that very bread. And who are they accusing of not doing the ceremonial what? Bread of life. Now, this is what Jesus brings out, and I love this. He doesn't answer their question right away. Because, again, this is a tradition. This is not commanded in the scriptures. This is something that had come from something that was developed in the scriptures, yes, from the Old Testament, but it was meant for the priests when they were going to offer sacrifice, when they were going into the temple. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, you can read about this very detailed uh, way of how they were supposed to take their hands and their feet to the bronze laver that was always outside of the temple or the tabernacle itself, this place where they would ceremonially prepare themselves as they would go into the tabernacle, would go into the temple to prepare the showbread, to prepare the candles that were in the holy place. When they would go in and provide those sacrifices that were there being offered up for the sins of the people. And yes, it was required of the priests, but it wasn't required of everybody. Unfortunately, what the Pharisees had done, they'd expanded upon this and said, if you're a good Jew, you're going to wash your hands before you eat. And again, this isn't meant to be something that was, oh, they would scrub their hands or, or get rid of the germs. It was meant to be ceremonially done over this closed fist. Now, the interesting thing is, again, Jesus does not address the question. He doesn't answer the question right away. What does he do instead? He does something more important. Do you know that you don't have to answer every single question that a non-Christian brings to you? Did you know that you don't have to answer all their questions? You have to point them to the one who can. Because I get some doozies of questions that I can't answer. Come on Monday night, those guys have crazy questions. Man, it, it, I just refer them to Jaime or Martin or somebody. The, the amazing thing is, who is the one that does provide not just the answers, but the reason behind? Because what Jesus does is he shows them something that they're doing that comes from the very commandments themselves, one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, one of the commandments that says that if you do this, you're going to have a long life. 
the first commandment with a promise. You know what it is. Honor thy father and thy mother. They weren't just not washing their hands correctly. They were disobeying one of the most important commandments of honoring their parents. And they were trying to manipulate the law in such a way where they didn't have to do it. Look at what it says there in verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Remember in the previous section, it was a tradition. It was a tradition of man. It was something that the Pharisees had added to the Old Testament, added to the law. This is a commandment. One of those foundational stones, literally, that come from the very mouth of God, something that was supposed to be done and revered, Honor thy father and thy mother. This is a commandment. Jesus is going to the very heart of the matter. Because of your tradition for God commanded, saying, Why, or excuse me, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. This is a capital offense. This isn't just something like the washing of hands where you might eat dirt with your food. What is Jesus saying? You're doing something far worse. You're actually breaking a commandment of God. Now, none of us can read another person's mind. None of us can really understand the motive of another person that may be asking a question. Hopefully, we always address whether it's a person that's asking the question, the the desire of their heart in terms of their motivation. I don't know their motivation. But... Jesus knows the motivation of the Pharisees. What are they trying to do? They're trying to trick him up. They're, they're trying to get him in this quandary or the, this problem where he can't explain his way out of it. Jesus, of course, being prophetically wise, the one who is omniscient, knowing the motives of their heart, takes them to the very place where they themselves are not just disobeying a tradition, they're disobeying a commandment. And they're trying to explain it away. What are they doing? And again, this is from a Jewish perspective. This, unless you really read into this, it's hard to understand why is Jesus accusing them of this. Verse 5, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. What are they doing? I can't help you, mom and dad. I gave this money to God. That's exactly what they're saying. I've set aside this money for the Lord, so I can't help you right now. I can't honor you right now. This was the the purpose of the kids after they themselves has grown up and their parents are now older. They didn't have a retirement plan back then. It was always dependent upon your savings or your kids supporting you in your older age. And what did these Pharisees say? I can't help you now. I can't provide for you because this money has been set aside for the Lord. Is that honoring to the parents? No, of course not. Then he need not honor his father or his mother. Jesus says this very specifically, looking to the very heart of the matter. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. What is he saying to what they're doing? You put this little tradition that is from the mouth of man 
to supersede a commandment that comes from whose mouth? God's mouth. Now, it's amazing to see that God is always a blessing God, even to those that are hypocritical to him. You can't see, because what can Jews do? Are, are they very good lawyers? Are, are they very good merchants? Yes. What can they do? Do they always get the better end of the deal? Why? Who gave them that ability to do that? God did, right? He blesses them. They're still his people, even though they deny him. But will God always keep his end of the bargain? Will I always keep his end of the blessing? Because it wasn't Abraham that walked through those split animals who walked through the split animals and guaranteed the promise that he would be a blessing to the descendants of Abraham. Right? And th this is what God does. Now, it's amazing what happens because of this. Jesus himself calls them hypocrites. Because they find these loopholes in the law. They find these loopholes that, that they can get away with, with, with not obeying the very command of God by obeying a human tradition. If you've ever been to, to Israel, it's amazing what happens on the Sabbath day because everything shuts down. Because the Sabbath is meant to be holy. But there's always loopholes. In fact, you're not supposed to travel a certain distance on uh, the Sabbath from your house. So in old times, what they would do is they'd take a couple of rocks from their house and they would go a Sabbath day journey. They'd put down a rock and then they would walk another Sabbath day journey. Why? Because there's still a Sabbath day journey from their house. They found a rock from their house. Nowadays, they use wires. When you go to Israel, there's wires all over these Orthodox Jews, even here in America, I was talking with Josh uh, last night and the privilege of seeing even today how they have to do things a certain way, but yet to do it so much so that they can still get around it. They still have to face Jerusalem and yet be within a Sabbath day's journey of their house. And yet they're always able to be able to finagle this. They have to talk to the rabbi or talk to someone that they can get it to make it kosher, to make it the right way. There's always a way that they find a loophole. And this is the same way. They were finding a loophole in honoring their father and their mother. And how did they do it? I'm just going to claim this money for the Lord. But when their parents died, what would they do? They'd take it back. They'd use it for themselves. They would, now their parents are dead, and now they could use this money for themselves. Jesus understood this. He calls them hypocrites. He quotes from the Old Testament here in the book of Isaiah, verse 7. Hypocrites, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. What were they saying about the commandments of God? Our traditions are more important than you. And we accuse the Jews all the time, and yet we do it just as well as Christians. Are we good at doing that too? Oh, yeah. It's okay. I don't have to do that, right? 
it, it, it's not a, a pillar for creation if I go to church or if I, I do this or do that. And yes, we can make these traditions. But what always trumps the tradition? God does. God's commandments do. We'll end it here tonight. Isaiah chapter 29 is where Jesus is quoting from. I, I want to read the whole section. This is the perfect way to go into communion. Because the verses that Jesus is quoting from in the, the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 29, it's beautiful how it brings it out. And it perfectly brings us right into not only the, the, the one who was standing there, the very bread of life, the one that they had made into this, just a rabbi that wasn't the one who was presenting the word of God to them, the one that had just walked on water, proving that he was the creator of the entire universe, the one that they were plotting at that very instant to kill, by the way. Isaiah 29, verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. And this is the Legacy Standard Bible. And their fear of me is in the command of men learned by or wrote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. Who is the one standing right there that is not only omniscient, who is prophetically wise, making sure that every single one of their human traditions are shown to be lacking? That they're actually taking their human traditions and superseding the word of God and showing it right in front of their face in a mirror. Thank God that God is always wise. It continues on there in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 15. And, and this isn't the part that's actually in uh, the New Testament, but it's in that same context. The very next verses explain the prophetic one who is there standing in their very midst, the wise one who is now standing in their very midst, verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their counsel from Yahweh and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? What is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Who is the one that made those very man in their midst? Jesus Christ. More miraculous, by the way, than creating the Sea of Galilee. More miraculous than creating that, that wind and that waves and walking on the waves. He's talking with the very people that he himself created. Wow. And that are rejecting the Creator standing right there in their midst. The bread of life. And He's going to die for them. He's going to be crucified for them. He's going to be buried, raised from the third day on, from the death. 
And he's going to show them who he is as the almighty one. The one who is greater than death, greater than sin. The one who provides salvation for his people. So as the men come up, as Kat comes up, we get the privilege of taking communion tonight with the creator of the universe. The one who is the bread of life. And while we're in the Gospels, we have the privilege of actually looking at each of the communion ceremonies, the Last Supper ceremonies from each of the Gospels. And since we're in the book of, of Matthew, we actually get to see what it is like. So the men, they're going to be passing out the elements. And as you hold the elements in your hand, really reflect. Who is the one that you're reverently acknowledging tonight? Who's the one that you're having communion with? Because we don't have a requirement in terms of membership, or maybe this is just your first Wednesday being here. I don't know. But if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have the privilege of taking communion right now. And if you don't, you can become a Christian. You can ask the Lord, please come into my life. Please make me one of your own. Please forgive me of my sins so that I may know you personally because if you take this without knowing jesus it really means nothing so as the men uh, hand out the elements as cat leads us in worship just really reflect upon those things thank you jesus i surrender all to him i freely give I will ever love trust him to bow truly pleasure all forsaken things Jesus save me and all
Chapter 26, verse 26, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it. We can take this by route, too. We can make this a tradition. Maybe your first time or your thousandth time. It's so easy to take the, the things that we do in church and, and make them into something that we just do because we have to. I hope tonight as you hold that bread that you look upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross and that, as that beautiful song is ringing in the back of your ears, I surrender all. We take this together. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my and then he took the cup and gave thanks. And he gave it to them. The bread, it's the privilege of looking back upon the cross, but the cup, we look forward. Because what does Jesus say there after he gives this cup to the disciples? For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ? And that's the privilege that we have, not only looking back at what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross as we take this communion, but also looking forward to when he comes back. And so as Jesus said, drink from it, all of you. Of course, it doesn't end there as our tradition is that Jesus also did right after the communion. And again, we can make this into something that, that has no meaning, but thank God for the words of this song. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Listen to this beautiful uh, hymn, uh, Who, he, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart.